you're new to New Hope, we've been working through a, a series called The Portrait. It's a study in the book of John, and uh, we're 31 weeks into it. We're finishing chapter 10 today. Uh, the series, The Portrait, it was selected the title because John 1.18 tells us that no man has seen God, yet Jesus explained him. And so thus the series of The Portrait, we want to know the nature and character of God better, to understand His ways, His actions. And Jesus explained him, so we've been spending our time in that study. There's a, uh, an understanding about the people of Israel, the Jewish people, that um, would go back to the time of Moses when they were constituted as a nation. Individuals would recognize they were set apart as a group different from the rest of the world because of one particular issue. And that is that they became a group of people who were monotheistic. In other words, they worshipped one God. They came out of a culture, Egypt, and out of the land of Shinar, the area of Persia today, as a group of people who were recognized as worshipping multiple gods, many deities, small g. And then God declared, I am one And so Moses was instructed to instruct the people of Israel that God is one. It's called the Jewish Shema. You might be familiar with it from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You'll see it on the screen. Here's the phrase that's primarily most associated with them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That set them apart from all other nations on the earth. That God is one. He's not polytheistic, he's monotheistic. So fast forward to the year of the first century, uh, to the time when Jesus is walking among Israel, and that understanding is entrenched among the people where he's at, that God is one, and yet individuals are trying to understand who Jesus is. They don't see him as God primarily. And they keep asking question after question after question, trying to get clarity. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why does he have these abilities? What you're going to see this morning as we end chapter 10 is a desire for individuals to ask point blank for clarity who Jesus is. You'll see that very specifically in a minute. Now, throughout the course of his three years of walking among them, he kept reminding them, that he's part of that oneness of God, although not in a specific way in which they really grasped it. Let me remind you of some of those things we've seen just in the last couple of weeks. Look on the screen. He said he's the one door by which we access God. He's the one endowed with the right to give eternal life. He's the one with the power to keep all, meaning all of us who are believers in Christ, in his hand so that no one will snatch them away. He's the one Son of God. Not one among many. He's the Son of God. And as one with the Father, you're going to see in a minute, that really ticks off the people of Israel when he says that. Chapter 10 concludes with an attempt to kill Jesus. There's an attempt to execute Him before His time. And that's in this passage that you're about to see. You'll find that this morning is going to be a little bit more didactic than uh, sermonic, a little, a little bit more on the, 
uh, instructive side might feel a little bit more like you're sitting in a classroom this morning, but there's very specific points that I really want you to get down, so it, it, excuse me if it feels that way, just indulge me, okay? Um, there's a gap of time from where we left off last week in verse 21 to verse 22, a gap of about three to four months. So we understand that we're fast forward into the month of December, November, where we pick up here now, and it's four months before Jesus' execution. Join with me in uh, John chapter 10 and verse 22, and when you turn there, I'm going to take a minute and pray with you. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there now. You'll also see it up on the screen, and there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and borrow one of those, and if you don't own a Bible, those are there for a gift for you. Go ahead and take one with you when you leave today. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. It's it's a free gift from New Hope. If you've got uh, John chapter 10, stick your finger there, and we'll uh, come to verse 22 after we pray. Would you bow with me? God, we come before you this morning as individuals, collectively as your church, and even more so as your creation. And we bow before you, Father. We bow our hearts in song. We lift our hands up in praise. We lift our eyes up, trying to know you better, and yet at the same time expressing gratitude to you, but also a longing in our heart to know you better. Father, your church is assembled before you right now, asking that your spirit would be fully present in such a way that we receive instruction from Your Spirit. God, I ask that You would pour out Your Spirit on this auditorium. That there would be things that would be seen here that we would never see on our own were it not for the work of the Spirit in our life. Give us a capacity, God. Give us a capacity to see things that are hidden, but Your Spirit can bring to life. Father, I ask that You would translate that to a passion to know you better. And that that passion to know you better would translate to a boldness for you as we walk before you day by day. God, right now, in this moment, I ask you help us to be fully present in the moment. To not be distracted by the things that we may have left behind us outside or the things that we might be doing later today, but to be wholly focused on you. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10, verse 22, this is the way it reads. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. You read that passage and you say, "What, what is the Feast of Dedication? We know that Israel had many different feasts. Excuse me, I'm going to cough for a minute, and I'm going to turn my mic off to do it, okay? would be grateful that I did that. Okay, I'm fighting a cough this week and uh, that helps. Okay, so the Feast of Dedication is one of the feasts that Israel celebrated. There's many feasts written throughout the Old Testament that God dictated that they should celebrate. However, the Feast of Dedication is not one of those. You won't find the Feast of Dedication written any place in the Old Testament because it was not a biblically instituted feast. It was something that man added. They added it as a result of a historical event. And here's the historical event. 
In the intertestamental period of time, between the end of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament, there's a gap of time of what they called the silent years. Several hundred years went by. During that period of time, in 167 B.C., there was a man that rose to power. He was the king of Syria. Pretty much the same size boundaries of the nation of Syria that we know today, a little bit bigger. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes ruled over Syria with an iron fist. He was also a fan of Greek culture, being Greek to his core. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was very active in carrying out what we call today the Hellenization of the Middle East and the Hellenization of Rome. As a matter of fact, he believed so much in the Greek culture that he wanted to overtake the Middle East and wipe out Israel as an entity that worshipped the one true God and introduce or reintroduce to them polytheistic worship. So he crashed the gates of the temple of God in Jerusalem after wiping out their military. And with his force, he came in and he set up a statue to Zeus inside the temple of God, inside the Holy of Holies, if you can imagine. And after he did that and required mandatory sacrifices to Zeus, he went outside on God's altar and he sacrificed a pig on God's altar. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, you'd know that's a no-no. Yet, this individual <clears throat> was so convinced that he needed to carry out the Hellenization of Israel, just like he had done in Rome, that he brought about brute force to do it. So, he outlawed the Old Testament, made it illegal. You couldn't even own a copy of it, much less read it. And if you were caught with it, you'd be executed. This began reminding, reminding you in 167 B.C. It went on for three years to 164 B.C. He was so intense on wiping out Israel's customs that he outlawed the practice of circumcision of male children. And if a woman gave birth to a child and they had that child circumcised, they would crucify the mother. Literally, put her on a cross and crucify her and then kill the baby that was born. This guy was brutal. Now, as a result of his oppression against the Jews, there was a revolt that took place. And this revolt that took place was led by a man by the name of Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees is written about in a Catholic version of the Bible. You, you'll read it as one of the last books. It's an extra-biblical source. It's a historical document that writes about this intertestamental period. And Judas Maccabees, with his sons, led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and overthrew him in the year 164 B.C. And as a result of them being able to eliminate him from Israel and kick him out of the country, everybody in the nation of Israel put candles in their windows to celebrate the fact that light had come back into Israel again. Today, we call that the Feast of Lights, or in our vernacular, Hanukkah. That's the celebration that takes place in the month of December for the Jewish people. So when you hear individuals say, Happy Hanukkah, that's what they're talking about. The Feast of Dedication. That's what John's writing about. So we know right away, we've got an eyewitness account to this situation that's unfolding before us. John's there. He sees the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, taking place during this period of time. And he tells us it's winter. And that explains why Jesus is walking under the portico of Solomon. Uh, what's significant about that? Well, in December in Israel, during the rainy season, it, it doesn't necessarily snow, but it's cold and it's nasty. And individuals decide that they would like to go for a walk and be part of 
um, the temple, yet not being exposed to the elements. So they would go to this place called the Portico of Solomon, something that was built during the reign of Solomon, a very, very large roof. In, in contrast to the actual temple itself, it's a massive complex, but it's part of the temple courtyard. And we find Jesus walking there. It was not uncommon when you see the structure, you realize how long it was. It's a very long structure. And individuals would go there like they do for a shopping mall. Imagine yourself going to the Meridian Mall just to get out of the weather in January and you just walk and walk and walk. Individuals would do that just to get out of the house. You could go there and see individuals in a form of worship or meditating or praying. But more commonly than not, if you went to the Portico of Solomon, in the wintertime, you would find rabbis walking with their students very slowly, just talking about the things of God, and turn around and walk back again just for exercise, just to get out, to get out of the weather. So that's what John is talking about. We understand that the early church, the first century church, after Jesus is resurrected, is found in Solomon's porch, in the Portico of Solomon. Look on the screen with me at Acts 5.12. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So that's a place where people went to study God's Word. So, it's December. The storm clouds are gathering. Jesus is nearing the end of His life. The Jews are celebrating a historical event and walking right in front of them, back and forth, in the portico of Solomon, is the God of wonders talking to men. And now we find that the leaders of Israel surround him in the midst of this stroll. As you're going to see in verse 24, they encircle him and they're not there for a pleasant conversation. They're there to ask him a very hard question. They've decided it's time for a showdown. We want you to answer our question. They don't want to evade the issue any longer. Who are you? Go with me to verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Mashiach, that's the word for Christ, Messiah, tell us plainly. That they gathered around him, the way it's written in the Greek, is literally they surrounded him. They got their posse together. And this is a hostile environment. And they're asking the right question. As a matter of fact, this is the most significant question anyone can ask. Are you the Christ? But given what they already know, you can tell that their motive for asking it is very questionable. They're not seeking clarity so that they can worship Him. This is another attempt to trap Jesus. And they want one simple thing accomplished. Make Him declare publicly who He claimed to be so that they would have grounds for a trial. That's what they're doing in this attack mode. Now, you would think at this point, would they not already have enough evidence to formulate a charge against him? No, the answer would be no. Actually, they don't have enough evidence because Jesus has never said in a public setting, he's Messiah. He said it in private, in small groups. He said it with individuals one-on-one. -on -one. Think of the Samaritan woman that we saw in John chapter 4, standing at the well with her, saying, I am he. And then talking with the blind man, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the one stands before you is the Son of God. We also understand when he's talking to the circle of disciples, he said to the disciples, who do people say that I am? 
They threw out a bunch of names, and then he said, who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So in small settings, Jesus affirmed who he was. So they're asking this question in public. The portico of Solomon is filled with people. They've gathered around him with this posse. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Is Jesus going to oblige them? Well, we're going to see in just a minute. It's very significant that Jesus has not declared who he is publicly yet. Why? The term Mashiach, Messiah, is associated with one who's going to be a military conqueror, a political ruler. In the minds of the Jewish people, when Messiah arrives, he's going to overthrow Rome and reinstitute Israel as a sovereign entity. So they've associated the term Messiah, the Christ, with something other than what God intended it to be. Go forward with me to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now notice there's two times that he said, you do not believe. That's really important as you move forward through this passage, telling them specifically, you do not believe. He's already plainly told them, for three years I've walked with you. I've shown you everything. Now, he's going to take them to a very deep theological level, and likewise, he's taking us there with him. His explanation of the capacity of God that you're about to see exceeds the grasp of the understanding of eternity, of space, of time, of security in God, things that they've never seen before, things that have never been understood until Jesus said it things that were previously never known. They do not understand, and he tells them why. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So we understand they can't grasp the significance of his works. All those miracles, the healing of the blind person, they can't grasp that because they're not his sheep. Now we would say from the human perspective, there's two perspectives on this. From the human perspective, Human responsibility, they don't believe because they deliberately reject the truth that they know to be true. Now, you live among individuals who have the information about who Jesus is, yet they deliberately reject the truth. You probably work with individuals or you maybe have members in your family who deliberately reject who Jesus is. Why? They have the truth in front of them, yet they reject it. Now, let's take the second position. From the standpoint of divine sovereignty, from the standpoint of God, they did not believe because they were not his sheep. I'm going to simplify this for you in just a minute, but there's a full understanding of how these two realities work together. It's just that we don't know it. God knows it. It's beyond human comprehension. There's no difficulty within the mind of God how these two things work together. Here's the two issues again. From the human perspective, we become his sheep by believing in him. But from God's position, we believe because we are his sheep. There's a mystery here that we cannot fathom. But we can accept it and we can rejoice like Paul. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? The problem here is not that Jesus has been vague. It's not that there's a lack of the revelation of truth. They've got all the evidence in front of them. The problem is spiritual blindness. And I want you to be very clear on this. Jesus does not reduce the responsibility of the unbelievers. That they are not Jesus' sheep does not exclude them. It does not excuse them. I want you to hear that very carefully. That unbelievers are unbelievers does not excuse them. Jesus says anyone who is willing to look for the truth will find it. Look with me up on the screen. I'll remind you of what we saw in John 7. John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you really want to know, you really dig into it, it's going to be obvious to you. So notice that the significant thing here is the Bible does not attempt to apologize in any way for the tension between these two issues. I'm going to put this in an example now so that you can understand that. Let's think in terms of Judas. Let's think in terms of the night of the crucifixion. Luke chapter 22 talks specifically about that. As a matter of fact, if you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I want you to see this passage because Jesus illustrates for us the tension between the responsibility of man and the responsibility of God. Luke chapter 22 and verse 22 The setting is this, it's the night that Jesus is instituting communion, the Lord's Supper. His followers are gathered in the room, and in the midst of instituting communion, Jesus begins talking about his betrayal. Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Yeah, I told you to turn there, and I didn't turn there myself, sorry. Okay. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined... But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now look at it again real closely. For indeed, the Son of Man is going. Going where? To the crucifixion. As it has been determined, predetermined in the mind of God. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Judas' betrayal of Christ is in accord with God's eternal purposes God's working out His plans through Judas' action. But what's Jesus' response to that? Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. As a matter of fact, it was said that it would be better if he had never been born than that he had lived and carried out this action. So that Judas' betrayal was part of God's plan does not relieve him of the responsibility. We see those two issues. There's a tension there. The Bible does not apologize for it. It's a, it's a mystery that's unfathomable to us. But that's Jesus' statement. And if you think he's taken them deep already, buckle your seatbelts for what he's about to say next. This is profound, verses 28 through 30 especially. Verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. At that point, the Jews began to applaud him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We totally get it now, right? Is that what they said? No. 
They're looking for stones. If they had guns, they'd pull them out. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Focus first on that first statement that he made, though. I give eternal life to you. Do you see how wonderful that truth is? If you belong to him, you have no fear of ever being lost if you're a true follower of Christ. Nowhere in Scripture, church, is there a stronger affirmation of the absolute, unlimited, supreme ability of your God to hold all true Christians in his hands. Jesus plainly taught the security of the believer is not encumbrant upon you and your actions and your works. It's totally what God does. It doesn't depend upon human effort. It's grounded in the promise and the power and the presence of God and God alone. He is the one who holds you. I put in your notes this morning six realities to help you understand this concept of God binding you. The six, six realities that bind. You'll see it up on the screen as well. I want you to take this at some point and just tuck it away in the back of your Bible because the issue of eternal security is greatly confusing for many individuals. There are many who are very weak on this, and Jesus yet was very firm on this. So I put these six points together to remind you of what Jesus is saying in this verse. Let me go through them with you real quickly. First of all, believers are his sheep. And it's the duty of the good shepherd to protect his flock. To suggest a true Christian can be lost is to deny the truth of Jesus' own words. Christ's sheep, number two, have eternal life. To speak of eternal life ending is a contradiction in terms. Number three, Christ gives eternal life to his sheep. Since we did nothing to earn it, we can do nothing to lose it. Number four, Christ promised that his sheep will never perish. Were even one to do so, it would make him a liar. Number five, no one, not false prophets, not demons, or even the devil himself is powerful enough to snatch Christ's own out of his hands. Number six, Christ's own are held not only in his hand, but also in the hand of the Father, who is greater than all. So the entire issue of security of the believer is summarized in Jesus' own words in John chapter 6. He spoke specifically to this issue. Let me remind you of what he said. You'll see it on the screen, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now when Jesus is saying, he's the one who created the world, we're told that the world was made through him, and he says, no one is greater than my Father. The word greater is a word that's very familiar to us in the English language today. The word megas. Jesus himself is saying, my Father is megas. Nothing is greater than him. And the great power of your God's hand Nothing can snatch you from it. And the great hand of Jesus, nothing can snatch you from it. So you're held in the grasp of omnipotence. God cradling you. That's why Jesus says, you can't only not take me from, you can't take an individual from my hand, you can't take them from the Father's hand either. There's no force or being greater, nothing more megas. That's why Paul could write in Romans chapter 8, for Who could take us from the love of God? Let me remind you specifically, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Who will tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? There's nothing that can snatch you away. Now that begs the question because I talk to individuals all the time who say, man, I, I know a person in my family. I, I have a friend who looked like at one time they walked with Jesus. They appeared to be a Christ follower. Yet today their life would not represent that they are. They're standing so distant from God. How is that possible? Well, very simply, I'll I'll respond this way without getting too far off on a rabbit trail. You had to have been in His hand in the first place in order to not be able to be snatched out. So we've got one of two issues going on. Either a person is living in rebellion and some die while in rebellion or they were never a believer in the first place. The issue isn't that they lost their salvation. They're either living in rebellion against God and committing sinful action, or they were never a believer. And so in verse 30, Jesus makes this summarizing statement that is shattering. If, he, if they think that He hasn't taken them deep at this point, He makes this conclusionary statement by saying, I and the Father are one. And that takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How could Jesus be using the association of Himself with the one we speak of in the Shema? You understand why they go to a point of such wrath and rage with Him. This is a statement that's even stronger than Jesus saying in John chapter 6, I've come down from heaven. Or His statement in John chapter 8, Before Abraham was, I am. He's associating himself as God. This, I believe, is the climax of the book of John. Yes, the resurrection of Lazarus that you're going to see next week is powerful. And the crucifixion, obviously, and the resurrection of Jesus. But honestly, church, without the reality of this truth right here, that God the Son and God the Father are one, The crucifixion is meaningless if Jesus is not God. Otherwise, it was just a man dying for your sins. This issue of the union of power is written about by an individual by the name of John Brown. I told you in weeks past that I love reading the writings of guys who lived many years before us, before electricity in most cases, because they had more time to think. This individual, John Brown, thought about this issue, and he he wrote this quote that I want you to see, speaking of the union of power between Christ and God the Father. He starts off with a question. One in what? Unquestionably in the work of power whereby he protects his sheep and does not allow them to be plucked out of his hand. What the Father is, that the Son is. What the work of the Father is, that the work of the Son is. As the Father is almighty, so is the Son likewise. As nothing can oppose the Father, so nothing can oppose the Son. Whatsoever the Father hath, the Son hath likewise. The Father is in the Son, and the Son in the Father. These two are one in nature, perfection, and glory. So to visualize this, you have to think like an ancient Hebrew because the ancient Hebrews always thought in word pictures. And so when we think of what Jesus is saying here, when He says, I and the Father are one, you've got to think like an ancient vineyard farmer. Because the description that Jesus uses here in the first century was very applicable in the Old Testament times as well. When a vineyard farmer 
had his vines ready to be harvested, he spoke of the oneness of his crop. He didn't speak of the quality of the individual grape. He spoke of the quality of the cluster of the grapes. And the beautiful imagery that Jesus is using here when he talks about he and the Father being one is yes, we have one cluster with God's quality, attributes, power, oneness being spoken of by Jesus. He's immediately associating himself in the same ranks as the Jews thought of God the Father with God the Spirit, the Ruach Elohim. And he's adding an element to it, God the Son. This theologically is more than they can possibly handle. They're asking for a plain statement and he's giving them more than their finite minds can possibly comprehend. But they heard one thing clearly, and they're furious. Accurately, unmistakably, they understand exactly what he said. And they pick up the stones to kill him. Now think about two issues going on here. Rome had taken away the authority of the Jewish people to carry out capital punishment. They reserved that right for themselves. And yet they're willing to kill Jesus. Where are they going to kill him at? In the temple, in Solomon's portico, marble floors. There's no rocks laying around on the floor of Solomon's temple. This is a beautiful environment. That means their rage was so severe, they actually left the temple complex, went outside into the streets, found rocks, carried them back in without their rage dissipating at all. They're ready to throw these stones at Jesus and kill him on the spot and they don't have the authority to do it. Now, in the face of this rage, Jesus responds very calmly to them. Look with me at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The, the word good works here is, is the Greek word kalos, and it means excellent, beautiful, Jesus is saying, I showed you many beautiful works from the Father. Why would you want to kill me? He's demanding that they look back over the course of his life. Think about the fact that I raised paralyzed people from their bed, that I gave the blind the power to see. Is it not incongruous within a religion of the world that you would object to the healing of people like that? And they can't see past their rage. So the response, verse 33, the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They're enraged. The miracles don't matter a bit. We don't care about the miracles. They'll brush them aside. For a good work we don't stone you. See, they knew at that point that was the public declaration they were looking for. They totally got it at that point. I want you to note that passage. Maybe you circle it and put it in the back of your Bible, write it down as a reference, because it is very popular today to say that Jesus never stated that He is God. You need to note this and mark it in your Bible, especially among the Mormons and among the Jehovah's Witness. They will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He said He was one of the sons of God, but never God the Son Equal with God. Will you take them to this passage and remind them of what this says? Now let's look at it from another angle. 
If someone misunderstood you about that statement and they're about to kill you, would you not be inclined to say, hey, wait, 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 wait. You misunderstood. Put your rocks down. It's okay. I want to clarify for you. I'm not telling you that I'm God. See, that's not what's going on here. We would take the time to make sure they fully understood what we said. That's not what Jesus does. Go with me to verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and said into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Notice, first of all, I'll explain that in just a minute, but notice, first of all, Jesus has been charged with blasphemy, yet he did not claim they misunderstood him. He makes a quote from Psalm 82.6. Why did he do that? Maybe you've read that passage over the years looking at the book of John. You're thinking, what is he talking about? I totally don't, I can't put that together. Psalm 82.6 is a statement that's made by God the Father about men on earth who served in a role as judges. Let me show you the actual quote on the screen. Psalm 82.6 says this, I said you are gods, notice, small g, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men, you will fall like every other ruler. What's going on there? This is a courtroom scene in the book of Psalms in chapter 82 in which God gathered together the leaders of the nation of Israel, the rulers and the leaders who served as judges, and they were corrupt. So God said to them in this setting, you are wicked, vile men. You will be judged one day. Do you not understand? You'll stand before me, the judge of all the earth. Get your act together. That's why he's referring to this passage because God the Father called men God, small g. Why? Because the term judge and God, small g, was interchangeable in their language at this time. So Jesus is merely pointing out on the basis of their own principles even the Old Testament refers to men as gods. Why are you objecting? I'm the anointed one sent of God. I'm saying I am the Son of God. How could you possibly reject this if mere men could be called the sons of God? He's just rationalizing with them that their, their position that they've landed on is irrational. Go forward with me now to verse 37. If, you, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. I look at that and I believe I see evidence of the immeasurable, massive patience of your God. Think back with me to the time when Moses said to God, God, I would like to see you. I would like to know you. God passes by in front of Moses on Mount Sinai. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, abounding in mercy, slow to anger. You see that in Jesus? They're trying to kill him. They've got the stones in their hands. And while he still has breathing space, before mob violence takes over and it forces his disappearance, he begins reasoning with them that they should believe and understand. Would you just 
Put your rocks down and believe. Would you understand by looking at the miracles that I've done? Now you have to ask yourself this question. Could they have believed? Jesus has already said to them in the previous verses, you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. But yet we see God the Father in the form of God the Son working through Jesus and Jesus urging them. Would you believe? Would you fully understand? Jesus is inviting those whom He said are not His sheep to believe on the basis of the miracles. Why? Look at verse 38 very closely. You'll see it on the screen. So that you may know and understand. Accept the evidence before you, the physical evidence, the miracles, the things that I've done. If they believe the miracles, then they'd know the Father. And that would open the way for them to know the Son. And then they could believe. See, it's really a simple matter of examining the evidence honestly and being willing to accept the truth. And for this Jewish group, of all people, they should have been willing to follow the evidence to its logical conclusion. They're the masters of religion. And that's not where they stand, so Jesus has to depart from them because they still want to kill Him. Verse 39, Therefore they were seeking again to seize Him, and He eluded their grasp. And He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and He was staying there. Many came to Him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, many believed in Him there. That's where chapter 10 ends. I went back through and I counted all the words in that passage. What you see on the screen, there's 60 words there. 60 words broken down into four verses that define the difference between heaven and hell. What you see before you is individuals who recognize there are always consequences when someone encounters God because what you believe about God determines what you do next. And so we have a group of individuals for some who is so obvious who who He is, they respond. What John said was true. This guy is who John said. And they believed. For others, they're so infuriated, it drives them to rage. And they take on irrational actions trying to push away from anything but Jesus. Want nothing to do with Him. So unexpectedly, without any further opportunity to respond, Jesus is gone. We're not told how that happened. How He eluded their grasp, we don't know. But what we do know, it was not His time yet. There's a couple more months to go by. They plan to execute Him then Jesus planned not for it to happen until later. They were going to stone Him in the temple. Jesus eludes their grasp. You'll see next week that He returns, not in a public setting, but in a private setting, to raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to take you back where we end today to verse 25, just for one little phrase. I want you to see this. Maybe circle it in your Bible. I told you, and you do not believe. That is not the phrase that you want to hear one day when you're standing before God. I told you, and you do not believe. There are many people.
people who are going to stand before the white throne. And that's what they're going to hear the king of glory say. I told you. And you reject it. Depart from me. I know that's brutally hard to hear. But the truth is, now while you're alive is the moment to react to this. All of Jesus' life points in one direction to the truth of everything that we're studying, His works, the content of His teaching. They speak volumes about who Jesus is. But I encourage you, church, if you're questioning whether or not you should become a believer, those who are gathered here this morning who may be wondering, do I really commit to this thing or not? Do not do it in a lukewarm fashion. There are far too many lukewarm Christians walking around today. There are many who have taken a position, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't really own it. What we're about to do this morning is participate in a song that's going to encourage you to own it. Michael and the worship team are going to lead us through a song that's very well known to the church. If you grew up in church, you're probably going to applaud the use of this song because it's called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. But this song has a very unique meaning to it. And I want you to understand the background. So while they're taking their position, you listen to the story of why this song was written. I Have Decided to Follow Jesus is a song that was actually written in the 1850s. It was not written here in the United States. Don't know if you knew that. It was written in the country of India. It was a man who lived in a village and among the village where he lived, a missionary came to meet with the people who were in this village. This individual listened to what the missionary had to say and with his whole heart, he decided to become a follower of Christ. The rest of the village rejected what they heard, saying, no, we're not there. After the missionary left, he discovered the, the man who gave his life to Christ discovered that his wife and children had also done the same thing. And the village chief, upon discovering that this entire family had given their life to Jesus, called a public assembly and before the community said to the community, this man who has given his life to this monotheistic God, Jesus, has a chance to recant. He can come back to what we believe or we will kill him before the village chief, he stood with his arms open wide and he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. The village chief turned to the man and said, I will kill your wife and children before your very eyes if you do not recant your position. Though no one joins me, I still will follow. They executed his wife, they killed his children. And as they're preparing to kill him, he broke out on song and said, the cross before me, the world behind me. That's where that song comes from. Somebody standing off to the side wrote those words down and the entire village gave their life to Christ. Complete conversion and change of direction. Those words were put away for years until the 1940s when a young evangelist came on the scene by the name of Billy Graham and he had a songwriter on his team who discovered those words and put it to music. The music that you're going to sing this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and sing this song together, but here's what I'm going to ask of you. 
Do not sing it. Go ahead and stand. Do not sing it if you do not mean it. Because God takes vows very seriously, church. If you're in a position where you're ready to say, I am all in, sing this song with full voice.